Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to Venture Stories by Village Global Podcast, here to do a primer on privacy, here with two very exciting guests. One is Elena Natalinsky, and the other is Avichal Garg. Can you first introduce yourself and why you're so excited about the privacy space? Yeah, so my name is Elena. I've been following crypto for a while now, mainly Ethereum. The thing that I'm focusing on currently is privacy tech and exactly how the tech works. I think it can be applied for a lot more than just privacy coins, but I think the tech in general is extremely fascinating. Awesome. Avichal? I'm managing partner at Electric Capital. We're a crypto asset management firm. Most of my background is actually in building and starting companies and stuff. So started a few things over the years and been fortunate enough to sell them. I'm very interested in privacy, both from the technology perspective, but also the use case and adoption perspective. And sort of more philosophically, privacy as a, as a fundamental human right and how we can use technology to move that forward. Let's get into it. Say more about how you're interested in how your interest in privacy manifests, how it uh, has evolved over time and where you hope to um, to, to capitalize that, uh, capitalize on it from, from an investment standpoint? Yeah, well, so uh, it's, it's a great question. So the way we think about it kind of is twofold. So one is from like a fundamental human need forward. And I think the uh, need for privacy is one of these things that many, many smart people over many, many decades and centuries have uh, arrived at from different perspectives. And, you know, it's even in our constitution, right? It's like the Fourth Amendment. And so I think there's there's something there where everybody over a period of time recognizes that in terms of you having freedom and being able to do what you want to do and being free from outside oppressive forces, uh, it, having privacy is, is kind of this core enabler of a lot of other really great things. And so we protect it legally. And one of the really interesting things, if you start from that perspective, is then how can we use technology to protect or, or further those rights for individuals? The other way to look at it is, I think, when you look at how technology gets adopted, very often what happens is all of a sudden we have a breakthrough in uh, how to do something. And then it takes a couple of years as people bring it to market and make it easier to use. But once they do that, all of a sudden we realize that we're not really using the technology to do something dramatically different. We're actually using the technology to do basically the same thing that we always wanted to do. And I think in both of these regards, crypto is really interesting because there is this fundamental human need and, and driver for privacy. And so there are a lot of people sort of exploring, uh, you know, whether it's snarks or starks or various other techniques to, to sort of pursue this. But we've actually, starting from the technology and going after the human need, we've actually, I think, made some pretty important breakthroughs in the last several years that allow us to do things privately or securely that we just couldn't do before. And so I think it's kind of this interesting intersection where even if you approach it from the sort of more product or philosophical side, or if you approach it from the technology side, you kind of end up in the same place, which is there's something really interesting happening here that's going to hopefully be widely used by a lot of people. So I have a devil's advocate question. Great. So a lot of people value blockchain because it's a public ledger. So imagine a world where everything runs in a public ledger, then in theory, you could catch corruption a lot faster or fraud. Now with privacy, uh, currency or coins, that kind of benefit goes away. And so uh, my question to you, Vichal, is, uh, and Eric, what are your thoughts on that trade-off? It's, I think it's a great question. So 
I, I think there are there are kind of two dimensions to this. So the first is the the trade-off between or, or the subtlety between privacy and verifiability. And so I think a lot of times when we're talking about a lot of the benefits of, of a public ledger, uh, what we're really talking about, you know, I think I think public is kind of an overloaded term. I think a lot of the times what we're really talking about are things like verifiability, auditability, security. And you can have that in, in concert with privacy. So you don't have to trade off privacy, for example, to have auditability and verifiability to know that the transactions were, in fact, what they, uh, you know, there's no double spend or that the right people got the coins and so on. Uh, and so I think there's a lot of times there isn't actually a trade off there to be made. You can actually have both privacy or um, confidentiality at the very least and have all the properties that make public ledger is pretty interesting because they're, to me, the really interesting parts are things like verifiability and auditability. So that's kind of one. Two, I think if you look at a lot of the use cases in the real world where we have implicit privacy, I think the end state of where we could end up with blockchain could mirror what, what that is, which is today, if you look at uh, most financial transactions, they're kind of default private, but they're really private to you and your bank. And then you have to reveal all these transactions, let's say, to the IRS in some sort of auditable form, some sort of packaged up form. Uh, and the IRS receives a bunch of input from, from a lot of different places and uh, then cross-checks and verifies. And if there's some sort of anomaly, then they ask you for additional information. And I think it's not so crazy to imagine that we end up in a world where we end up with privacy, but rather than it being relying on some sort of intermediary, essentially the software and the protocol guarantee that privacy. But if there's some sort of anomaly, that it's auditable. And so you have things like view keys and, and some third party that really cares to be able to audit them could ask for the view key and make sure that things are being done properly and legitimately. So, for example, that you're paying your taxes or you're not money laundering. And I think that could actually be a great outcome for the world, which is now we don't have to trust these intermediaries, but it doesn't really break the way the existing legal system or regulatory system works. I'm going to ask a question that's like 10 questions ahead. I'm just skipping sure. right, right to one of the chases. Do you think that when this technology reaches a you know, maturation, will people pay taxes? <laughs> and that's sort of asking, yes. but yeah. So say, say more about how, how that will work and how our relationship to the government will change or not change um, in a world of you know, privacy, privacy coins at scale. The way I think about it is, okay, what does the government really care about? Uh, the government basically cares about three things. They want you to pay your taxes, like you said, one. Two, they don't want people to get frauded. So, you know, the, the SEC is going to make sure that there's you know, minimal fraud. And three, they don't want you to give money to terrorists. And actually, if you think about it, these are all pretty reasonable things, right? Like people should pay the taxes. People shouldn't you know, steal other people's money. And uh, we shouldn't give money to terrorists. These are all like very reasonable assertions. So I think we will probably end up in a world where people pay their taxes and we you know, have the SEC set regulatory guidelines and, and boundaries on what is and isn't okay to minimize fraud. And the government will exercise you know, their leverage on the fiat on-ramps and off-ramps and KYC and AML to make sure that terrorists don't receive funding. And so I think we probably end up in a world that kind of from a, from a regulatory perspective looks a lot like the world today. But what we've done is by using new forms of technology, we've shifted the balance back to the individual. We made it so that you don't have to rely on some trusted third party that could get hacked. And, you know, for, for example, you know, I, I would much rather trust um, encryption and, and security software versus uh, some third party that has a database that's just a honeypot of all of the data, you know, of all of my transactions or you know, my social security number and so on. Um, and so I think on balance from a technology perspective, we end up in a much better world, a more secure world, a more private world. But in terms of the practical interfaces to the government, we'll end up probably where 
uh, where we are today because the requests, I think, by and large from the government are, are actually pretty reasonable. I'm curious how you see adoption playing out because isn't one of the, the fears historically or maybe even today that some regulatory bodies feel that, or some, you know, certainly a narrative feels that Bitcoin itself is too, is too private and that people are using it for crime and, and you're saying, hey, we want something that's, that's even more private. Why, why would regulatory bodies or governments sort of let this, this happen or unless you say, hey, they don't really, it's not really up to them? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think this is the classic, your, your privacy or your liberty or your freedom versus you know, the collective good or security kind of trade-off. And I think we face this in, in an abstract way in all sorts of, in all sorts of daily situations. And I think if, if history is any guide, there are actually really great examples where technologists were able to have conversations with regulators and articulate why there are really, really good use cases for certain types of technologies. And actually it makes sense to make sure that we protect those really great use cases and we find ways to deal with the side effects. So for example, there are these great uh, stories from the mid nineties uh, with Netscape and SSL. And so, you know, Mark Andreessen went in front of, in front of the Senate and Congress and, and there were all these questions around how should SSL work um, and should you be able to encrypt data and then the government can't see it and doesn't that mean terrorists can you know, pass money around and nobody would be able to see it and so on. A lot of this sort of similar questions that I think we're faced with today. And what the Netscape team did, which I thought was really, really smart, was they went in and said, hey, look, you don't want credit card numbers going over the wire. Like, you don't want them to be unencrypted. You actually have these use cases, very reasonable use cases for very reasonable people that we would just kill off if we didn't have encryption and we didn't have security. And so I think it's up to people who are reasonable and want these things to survive long term to find ways to talk about all these great use cases that would be unlocked if we could have access to this technology and then find ways to work with regulators to try to kill off those not so great side effects. So, for example, I think, you know, it's not so crazy to assert that if you're going to pay for a medical procedure, that you should have some degree of privacy, um, just in case there's some sort of data hack on the other side that you were able to pay for services, the hospital received the money, but, you know, your, your data doesn't get flooded onto the internet. Um, or let's say you're a business and you have to pay a lot of suppliers. It's not so crazy to assert that uh, you should be able to pay your suppliers without your competitors knowing exactly how much money you're paying to whom on what cadence and so on. And so I think if you articulate some of these really reasonable use cases, it becomes a little bit more obvious that it's not really a privacy versus no privacy trade-off. It's like how do we enable all the good stuff and how do we find ways to, to limit the bad stuff? And there are ways to limit the bad stuff without killing off the technology or the, or the good use cases. Cool. So I do have another question that kind of relates to something you said earlier. First of all, I kind of want to define what privacy coins are, since I don't think we've done that. And so in comparison to Bitcoin or Ethereum, privacy coins basically hide the sender, receiver, and the amount. So the examples that we have today are Monero, Zcash, and this upcoming project called Grin that people are super excited about. And we can talk about Zcash Monero, but I kind of wanted to focus a little bit on Grin because not only is it private by default, but it also doesn't have a view key, so to speak. So you can't exactly provide audit information if someone were to ask you to give them that information. So I guess my question for Vichel is, how do you view Grin from that perspective? Because earlier you said that, yes, we have privacy, but you can audit any transaction, but for Grin, for example, I don't think you can. Yeah, it's a it's a really good question, and um, I don't think anybody really knows the answer yet. And it'll be really interesting to see how it plays out. I mean, I think 
if you look at a lot of the trade-offs between all these different privacy coins, there are trade-offs in usability, there are trade-offs in the degree of probabilistic privacy that you're getting, there are trade-offs in things like your family view keys. Specifically, I think, you know, in the case of Grin, I'm super excited about it. I think it's, it's pretty fascinating. Even the origin story, I think, is amazing, where somebody comes in and drops a white paper and disappears. The fact that there's not going to be a pre-mine and it's going to be, you know, you have to set up a mine or get access to points in the early days. There's, like, a lot of really interesting aspects to to this story, which I think have captured people's attention. More pragmatically, I think one of the challenges here is going to be how do you actually get liquidity? You know, the best technology doesn't always win. And I think one of the things that's going to determine which of these things wins ultimately in the market is to what degree are there fiat on ramps? To what degree can people actually access these things? To what degree does the usability allow people to actually have access to these things and go mainstream ultimately? Because I think, you know, even if you bootstrap off of some of these edge cases, um, or if you bootstrap off the dark markets, ultimately for these things to really hit scale, the average person has to be able to use them, which means they're likely going through some degree of a, a regulated banking infrastructure. And that's really where the government has leverage. And so I don't know how it plays out, but I, I certainly think that it's going to be harder for things that don't map to an existing regulatory framework or, or where we can't make the case for how it maps to an existing regulatory framework. And, and I think Green is going to have some challenges in that way. Uh, but yeah, time will tell. It, it's just so hard to predict these things, especially given that you know the, the barrier to entry is just so low because people can just you know, move Bitcoin over, people can participate all over the world. Um, so you know, time will tell how it actually plays out. But I, I think actually, you know, like for example, some of the stuff that Zcash is doing in terms of how they interface with the regulators, I think is really really smart. And I think they're taking they're taking more of like the net safe approach. I think they're they realize that making the case for why this is a good thing and, and having great relationships with regulators, I think is in the long term, how you really go mainstream. Cool. So uh, another question that I have is, do you think people care about privacy? And this question comes from kind of pure statistics. So if you look at Bitcoin and Ethereum, Bitcoin's market cap is around $120 billion. Um, but if you look at Monero, which is the most popular privacy coin that's being used today, it's a little under $2 billion. And then for Zcash, it's a little under $1 billion. And I think I've heard a statistic somewhere that in aggregate, if you combine all the privacy coins, they, they make up less than 3% of all cryptocurrency transactions. So just based on numbers alone, it kind of begs the question of, do people care about privacy? It's a great question. I, I, I think I have a maybe a contrarian answer to most people in crypto, which is I think the answer is no. Most people don't actually care about privacy. That being said, I think the very related and important question is, well, who does care about privacy? And I think more sophisticated users and people who have more money at stake will likely care about privacy a lot more. And so in some sense, the, the metric to really look at is more dollar-weighted rather than user-weighted. So the vast majority of people may not care about privacy, but I believe the vast majority of dollars will care about privacy. So you might end up with a lot, a lot fewer people, but a lot more dollars in that ecosystem. And the other kind of body of people that I think will care a lot about privacy are, are ultimately institutions. So when you're talking about institutional capital moving in, you know, enterprises moving into the space, I think they're going to care a lot more about privacy. And you kind of see this in terms of like cybersecurity spend, right? Like how much does the average person really spend on things like password managers or, or encrypting all their data? It's, it's not really something that the average person does, but enterprises spend a lot of money on that stuff. And so I think as, as the space 
you know, has, has enterprises and institutions and really deep pools of capital move in. From a dollar-rated perspective, people are going to care a lot more about privacy. Uh, and so I think you're going to see you know, the adoption go through the roof as, as those sort of deeper pools of capital move in. That's so interesting. So I guess to summarize that, you're saying that the biggest drivers drivers of privacy coins are actually going to be financial institutions and less so about black markets. Yeah, I think the black markets are an interesting way to like bootstrap uh, this ecosystem, but ultimately it's going to be institutions, it's going to be people who um, have large amounts of money at stake, and those could be financial institutions, or it could just be Bitcoin whales, a high net worth. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so it could be, you know, like it, it could be actually... If you have you know half a billion dollars, if you have five hundred million dollars in this ecosystem because you actually have I don't know ten billion ten billion dollars and you moved some significant portion in early and you had a massive run up, you might not want everybody to know that you have half a billion dollars of crypto, and so you're much more willing to move it into a privacy coin and keep it keep it parked there versus other coins. And so I think from a dollar weighted perspective, the deeper pools of capital will care about this a lot more. You know, privacy coins. It's a type of thing where if it was the default, everyone would be or not everyone, but most people would be like pretty happy with it. But it's also the type of thing where if you sort of have a need for it, people will have, you know, sort of be skeptical um, in, in some sense or, or, or assume, at least in the beginning, assume that people are up to up to no good. How do you think this achieves sort of mainstream? Like what, what's the path for, for it, you think? Yeah, I actually think the HTTPS example that we were talking about before in SSL is a, is a really good one, which is I think you start... My, my bet is that the most likely path forward is something that makes regulators feel comfortable and helps them understand what the real use cases are, allows us to build those use cases out and create real value for people. And so likely uh, something that is either opt-in, which you know, Zcash Shield or transactions are, or uh, has this sort of fallback of, well, even if it's opt-out, but by default private, the uh, you know the there is an escape hatch of give me a view key. I think those are both pretty reasonable starting points. And then over time, we actually have to build utility. We have to build real value and be able to point at those real use cases. Uh, and then uh, over time, you could imagine that um, because the real use cases, the high value use cases, become the you know ninety nine percent use case, everybody becomes comfortable with just making it the default. And that's a better that's a better end state for everybody. Uh, but there, there's sort of a path dependency there. And I, I think the most likely way to get there likely is by making regulators feel relatively comfortable with it, demonstrating that there's real utility, and then over time uh, making it a default. And I think if you look at kind of the history of HTTPS and how that worked and how that evolved, everything is by default HTTPS now. Or if you look at end-to-end encryption, right? We, we sort of worked our way there, and and I suspect a similar thing will happen with privacy coins. We we made a bunch of comparisons to the web, which sort of embarrass me to zoom out a little bit and say that there, you know, there's been, there's a school of thought that says, Hey, this broadly, the crypto movement is, is web 3.0, you know, you know, redefinition of, of the internet, trying to achieve some of the goals that it set out to achieve when it first started. And we can learn a lot about where crypto is going from studying how the web evolved over time. And then there's another school of thought that says, Hey, this is money. It's, it's not equities. It's not social media startups. It's, 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 it's not the next app store. It's money, and we can we, we. It's not the web, and so we can't really look to Silicon Valley as history as much as we look to for how money has evolved over time, and look at things like gold and Austrian economics and and things like that. Where do you are you sympathetic to both? Either how does that land on you? I am squarely in the both camp on this one. I I'm, I pretty firmly believe 
the first big market here and likely the biggest long-term market is, is money. But this is software eating money, to use Andrews and Grace. Software eating. So, you know, uh, Mark Andreessen wrote this great op-ed in 2010 or so called Software is Eating the World. And he, he articulated how there are these massive, massive parts of the economy that software is just starting to touch. And he was absolutely right. This was, you know, eight years ago at this point. And as software moves into, into these uh, new sectors, it absolutely takes parts of the old, but it also brings some of the best practices from software, some of those patterns from the internet into those, um, into those sectors. And so I think it's going to take from both. I think there are definitely some things that we can look to the internet and mobile and the last, you know, and PCs and, and kind of the last 30 years of, of software and say similar things will happen here. But because the use case is money and money-like instruments, I think there there is a lot to be brought in from that side of the house. And so that's that's to me one of the most interesting and most fun things about the space is we're all kind of trying to figure out which aspects from these two worlds come together and how they come together. And I don't think anybody really has great answers yet. I mean, we're all kind of trying to figure it out together. What are other non-obvious use cases or needs that that privacy or privacy coins help address? Well, I, I think, uh, you know, the, the three I think about top of mind, one is essentially store value. I, I mean, I think a non-sovereign store value, you know, it's, it's an open question of how much privacy matters to that. But I think that's one of the big use cases that a lot of people think is is actually a likely use case for crypto, even if you don't believe in dApps or you don't believe in, you know, high throughput payments. I think there are a lot more people who might who might assert, yeah, maybe this is a new asset class that could be a store of value in time. And so there's a you know a big open question there how much privacy matters. The second is is in payments. I think there are lots of use cases where actually privacy and payments is is very important. Whether it's things like uh, uh, healthcare payments or whether it's things like you know if you want to let's say you live in a certain community and you want to donate to a certain cause, it's nice to be able to do that without having to worry about the scrutiny of the community. Or you know in certain countries that may not have uh, the same rights to to speech. That we do that that maybe being able to support certain causes is actually really important, but you don't want the government to be able to see that in those specific cases. So, you know, depending on kind of where you are in the world, I think some of the payments use cases uh, make a lot of sense. And I think the enterprise use cases are also very real. I think businesses by by their nature don't want everything they do to be public right away. I mean, I think this is where that difference between privacy and auditability is really that's an important distinction. Where I think businesses need to be able to operate without their, their competitors necessarily knowing what they're doing, but there should be some sort of an audit trail there so we can make sure that they're not doing anything illegal. Um, and I think uh, that's that's yet another use case. And so those are the three one, big ones that I think about is like, how much does privacy matter in, in store value? How do you think about privacy in, in payments use cases? And I think there are tons of really great day-to-day use cases where privacy is, is very important. Um, and I think most reasonable people would agree that things like medical payments are, are a reasonable use case for that. And then I think on the enterprise side, a lot of businesses will actually care about, about privacy, whether it's in payments or smart contracts. So I guess my question is, do you think that private smart contracts are important? And do you see other projects can that? Yeah, short answer is yes. I think, you know, in, in some sense, if you look at kind of the, the three things that technology that crypto allows you to do today that are novel and interesting, one is this idea of a digital store value non-sovereign and fully auditable and you know, disconnected from other asset classes. So that's like one thing that's happening in the world. The second is this idea of privacy and private transactions and confidential transactions and anonymity. And there's a bunch of technology that's novel and interesting there. And then the third is smart contracts, which is the idea that 
software code can own money. And that looks a lot like legal code owning money and then humans executing on those transactions. And as the last 50 years of technology history have shown us, computers are actually better at taking simple code-like instructions and executing on them. And so likely that ends up being something that software can do better than, than humans do today. So if you look at these three things, store value, privacy, and smart contracts, there's a really interesting question of how they get kind of mashed together, right? How do these feature sets really collapse in time? And so, you know, how much does privacy matter for smart contracts? How much does privacy matter for payments on its own? How much does privacy matter for, for store value? How much does smart contracts matter for store value? Like, do you actually have to build a digital economy where there's some sort of digital reserve currency that's powering that economy and that's how you back into store value? So w- when I think about like how much does privacy matter, I think I actually think about it across the spectrum of all of the use cases that crypto is now enabling. And I suspect that privacy is going to be an important uh, starting point in, in all of those. Um, and so smart contracts is, is, a, is a great example where I think privacy is going to matter a lot. Ethereum is going to come at it from the, hey, we have smart contracts and uh, let's, let's figure out how to bake privacy into this. And I think there are going to be other people that come at it in the reverse direction. Like I don't think it's crazy for some of the privacy coins to think about how to layer smart contracts on top of it. And I think there will be people who start bottoms up and say, well, let's just reinvent what this is from scratch with this as a killer use case in mind. And so you have projects like Oasis that are, that are pursuing trusted execution environments and eventually you know, private smart contracts and so on. And so I think it'll be interesting to see which of these three approaches, whether it's from the ground up, let's build this as, as a thing that we want to enable, the smart contracting platforms building in privacy over time, or the private coins building in smart contracts over time. I think all three approaches will get tried and time will tell which ones actually work. And do you have a hunch on which, like, and how, how do you, because my question was going to be, how do you see Bitcoin, Ethereum coexisting with privacy coins and where, where does value accrual, accrue in terms of, does Bitcoin just put it in a side chain or, you know, copy some of the features? Like, what do you, one, do you have a hunch which will, which will, which will win? And, and two, like, what will determine which approach will win? Yeah, the, the second one is, is an easier question to answer, I think, than the first. I think the thing that will determine it ultimately is how much privacy actually matters to whoever is moving the most money around. If privacy matters a lot and is actually the killer distinguishing feature, then I think that people who start with a more private, privacy-centric perspective have to stand a better shot. If it turns out it's just another feature that matters but is not actually the killer feature and people are willing to trade off a little bit of privacy for other things that are the killer features, then it, it will likely not be something that starts private. It might actually be something that has some other structural advantage or distribution advantage. Uh, and we see that happen all the time, I think, in technology. It's not necessarily the best technology that wins. There are always other factors around how it gets adopted that are just as important, um, which is why I think your first question of how does this play out is a really hard question to answer because I don't think we, we really have a great read yet on how much privacy matters and to whom. We know that it matters, and it matters to some people, but it's unclear if that's the dominant set of people or the dominant amount of money, and and that, I think, is ultimately going to determine which approach ends up succeeding. One more question. So we have different privacy-preserving techniques, and, and different techniques provide different levels of privacy. Even if you look at Lightning and other Layer 2 solutions, they arguably also provide some layer of privacy between, you know, because payments within the channel aren't seen on-chain. And then for Monero, it's arguably a weaker level of privacy. And, you know, this is a, I'm not going to make a strong uh, diss on Monero here, but uh, if you 
you know, I'm sure you can find a lot of articles describing how Monero is, it can be traceable. And then for Zcash, they have shielded transactions, which, you know, some people argue is overkill uh, because it's extremely strong privacy, which makes a trade-off of usability. It's very hard to deal with these shielded transactions. So my question is kind of around, like, what level of privacy is good enough? And do you think there's going to be multiple privacy solutions for different use cases and for different people who value their privacy differently? Yeah, I think um, I think there, you know, the, the Monero or or Zcash or you know, eventually if it moves from Snarks to Starks or yeah, you know, sort of the ever escalating um, security profiles of these and and the ever improving user experience of all of these points. I suspect they're all going to cross some some baseline bar for the average person. And so the other factors that are are going to drive adoption, I think, will will be just as important. Um, because I, I don't think uh, the average person or even the average institution that's making these decisions is going to think as deeply about you know, technology one versus technology two, as long as they both cross some threshold for for being useful. And I think I suspect that all of these all of these projects will cross that threshold for most people. Now, there's the sort of like I don't want to get exposed or attacked by some sort of state actor level of privacy and security. And I think they're operating on that level then you're going to be much more particular about which technology you use and which point you use as a result. But I suspect that's actually going to be a minority of use cases. I think the majority of use cases don't need sovereign-grade protection. They need protection against hackers and third parties and their competition and so on. And, and all of these coins will be good enough. And then um, to the second question, it's it's really, you know, I think the other factors that are going to determine who ultimately wins. Like who can build the best liquidity in the market? Which of these things are uh, palatable to regulators in different parts of the world? And you know, regu- regulation has has this sort of regional geographic network effect, and so it's entirely possible that you get different types of coins winning in different parts of the world because the way that they're regulated might be different. Where certain parts of the world are okay with opt in, other parts of the world are okay with opt out privacy, and so on. But I suspect these other factors of regulation, liquidity, usability, wallet support, layer two support you know, uh, DAP ecosystem, like all of these other things are actually going to matter just as much as the underlying technology, assuming that everybody gets over some baseline bar of, of security and privacy and anonymity, which I, I think most of these projects will. Just for our audience, can you define what sovereign grade uh, means? Yeah, it's, it's you know, it's, it's basically if you, um, if you're worried about some sort of state actor, you know, like if you're worried about Vladimir Putin figuring out how much money you have and, and coming after you to try to access that. Yeah, that's that's like a le- a level of protection and, and security that you're you're going to want to be really really careful about everything from how you're acquiring those coins, where you're acquiring them, to your IP, you know, your IP history going going through you know various uh, channels to actually acquire the coins or trade the coins, like the the level of uh, paranoia that you need to protect against that versus like hey look I just don't want some third party to know what I'm doing. And, you know, if the government ever audits me, like, I'll, I'll show the IRS my books. I'm not trying to steal money. But I still care that, you know, they can't just go sniff everything about me and hoover it all up. I think it's like where probably most people end up is like, I just want to be safe and secure and make sure that I'm not leaking information all over the Internet. But I'm also not trying to do anything illegal and I'm not trying to avoid the government in any meaningful way, which is, I think, probably like, you know, 99% of people. Sovereign grade is often contrasted with platform grade. Is that correct? Uh, you know, it's a good question. I don't, I don't know what the exact other term would be. Uh, I, I don't know. Like, I, I sort of think of like you know, 
sovereign and non-sovereign because it's just like there's they're secure and insecure and if you're secure then there's like some higher threshold of sovereign grade protection which is like i don't i don't want food to know what i'm doing yeah cool for for engineers out there who are you know extremely talented and also extremely interested in the space i'm curious what's on your sort of request for projects list in, in, in privacy or where do you want to see people people innovating here what do you want to see people people building yeah i think we're, we're starting to likely get to a point where it's it's not that we have a deficit of people operating at the protocol layer i think we're probably today operating with a deficit of people at, at layers of stack above that so how do i actually buy these things what does the wallet experience look like how do i actually move them around how do i convince you know, how do how do we do business development and partnerships so that there are people who will accept these things and and fiat on ramps? How do we um, articulate the the story of why privacy is important? Which we've done as as societies, we've done that for hundreds of years to to regulators and rule makers. How do we do those kinds of things? And so I think everything kind of above the protocol layer is is right now under resourced. That's not to say that there isn't a ton of work to do with the protocol layer. I think there is. There's a lot of really important work to do there. But for people who don't have a lot of depth there already, I think ramping up on that stuff is is much harder. And there's such a dramatic undersupply of people, I think, working at, at everything above that right now that from a you know ramp up time perspective and in terms of impact per per hour that you could put in of engineering effort, I think you might actually get higher ROI today working at higher parts of the set. How about you, Elena? Where do you want to see people go innovate or build or research? Yeah, I mean, I think this tech is actually um, very versatile and it's being used to privacy coins just because it's kind of an obvious use case in some ways. But the tech actually allows you to attack a multitude of other projects that are actually outside of crypto as well. And I'm kind of excited to see people figuring out uh, how else can we do computation on, on private data and prove that the computation was done correctly. You know, I think that opens up a lot of doors for some trustless computation. Uh, and I'm kind of excited to see people going in that direction. Uh, Vichal, what, what excited you about the way Elena is approaching her project or, or her research? I've been very impressed with how, uh, in, in two respects of life. One is, I think, how quickly she's gone deep. So actually spending time to, to dig into uh, the protocols and understanding the algorithms and the, and the math behind it and really spending time to, to understand it from, from those like foundational principles up. And then the other is getting really plugged into the ecosystem because so much of what's happening is not yet written down and it's not even documented. It's actually in people's heads. And so as you're coming up on the, on the fundamentals and the foundational pieces, and I think this is great advice for anybody who is looking to get... Um, ramped up in, in crypto, generally speaking, really what we have to do is get access to all the people who are working on this stuff and then go go have conversations with them and pick their brains and learn from them. And I think Elena's done an exceptional job of that. Thank you so much, Rachel. I do kind of have one thing to add. So I have been looking into snarks, darks, and bulletproofs uh, and kind of the general, you know, zero knowledge proof area. And I, I do agree that it's very difficult to find information and to find discrete information about some of these projects. And if you have questions, it's very hard to find answers because there's just not that much reading material on the internet available at all. So kind of just to share my approach of how to handle this, I, I do go to the people. So if I read, you know, the Zcash paper and something doesn't make sense to me, 
I actually just go to their chat channel and I ask the question. Uh, same thing for Grin. Grin is a very new project. People are extremely excited about it. And they do have some pretty good documentation on their GitHub page. But once again, uh, if you have a very specific question on how their protocol works and how their consensus layer works or some of the details about their algorithm, it's it, it's very difficult to Google any of this just because there's not that much available. And so my biggest kind of advice to people who are really who are really digging into this uh, is once again to go to these projects and go to their chat channels and just ask people um, because that is by far not only the fastest way to get to get information but also the fastest way to get plugged into that community if you're truly interested in how the tech works. Guys, thank you so much. This has been a fantastic episode. Where can people find you online and learn more about what you're up to and uh, any updates people should stay tuned for? Yeah, so for me, I think the easiest way to find me is on Twitter. Uh, my handle name is Lean the Bean. And you have a couple talks online, a few blog posts here and there that people could check out? I do, and most of them are on Twitter. Same. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm just at Avichal. I'm not super, super active there, but that's the best way to see what I'm thinking about. Awesome. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks, sir. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks, Lena. Talk yeah, to you soon. Thank you. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check out more at www.villageglobal.vc. We'd love to learn more about what you're up to.